There are some things that a preacher just can't say. A preacher can't lie. His word is supposed to be his bond. He's supposed to be the model of integrity in the way that he acts and the way that he speaks. A preacher can't cuss. Public. A preacher can't use his words. He must never use his words to proclaim anything that is contrary to sound doctrine, anything that undermines the faith once for all delivered to the saints. A pastor must be careful to make sure that he represents the truth of the Word of God and the gospel accurately. But the one thing a preacher could never say, the one thing that would seem utterly unthinkable for any man of God to say would be in prayer for that preacher to say, God, I wish I was dead. And yet that's exactly what Elijah the prophet is going to pray to the Lord here in 1 Kings chapter number 19. Lord, just finish my life. Because the future is so dark. The present is so hopeless. Now, Lord, I don't want to go on. Now, I doubt that any of you here today have ever prayed that way. Because frankly, you're afraid God might answer it, right? But while I don't think any of you have probably ever struggled, at least I hope, I sincerely hope that you've never struggled with genuine suicidal ideation, or suicidal tendencies, just because you don't really want to die does not mean that you really want to keep living the life you have. Elijah does not want to keep living the life that he has. And maybe you've reached that point. Maybe in your relationship with the Lord, you sense nothing. You feel separated from God. You feel distant from Him. You feel an overwhelming black cloud of discouragement that never seems to lift. And maybe you wonder, what's the point in going on? Maybe the fire's gone out and... You don't know why your wood's wet. Maybe there's a restlessness inside of you and you just say, I just need a change. I just need something to change. Maybe tonight your tank is empty. Maybe your battery is on 0%. Maybe you're burnt out. Maybe you've never thought about it. Maybe you've never heard anybody talk about it in church. Maybe you think you're the only person that's ever felt this way. Maybe you don't know how to put your finger on it or, or understand why it's happened. I want us to spend the next couple of weeks on Sunday evenings talking about this experience from 1 Kings chapter number 19, what it means for us to be burnt out. And here's what I want to show you over the next few weeks, Lord willing, that burnout is the crippling spiritual exhaustion that can only be cured by the Lord who meets us in our emptiness. Burnout is the crippling spiritual exhaustion that can only be cured by the Lord who meets us in our emptiness. Let's read 1 Kings chapter number 19 this evening. And let's try and figure out how it is that Elijah became so drained. Why is it that he is on 0%? Why is he running on empty? And why are you running on empty if you are? Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. 
Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. He looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, Killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Stop reading right there. Would you pray with me this evening? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight in the name of Jesus our Lord. We thank you, God, sincerely for the gift of your word. But God, we need the Holy Spirit to understand what you teach us. I need the Holy Spirit to communicate accurately. Father, frankly, right now, I need wisdom to preach that I do not possess. I need that which is beyond me to help me to preach to your people who are needy, some who are very, very discouraged tonight. And so, God, I pray that for their sake and for the sake of the Lord who loves them, you would give the help that we need in these moments. God, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your word. God, I pray for me as the preacher that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, Lord. You are my rock and you are my redeemer. And God, I need you in these moments. We thank you for your word, which will stand, Lord, when the grass withers and the flower fades. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Old Testament prophets functioned something like the smoke alarms of ancient Israel. When something would go wrong, when there was a spiritual crisis, God would call and God would send a prophet who would declare the word of God to them again to remind them, you need to repent. You need to turn back to the Lord. It's time for you to make things right. And they would blare forth the noisy message of God who called his people to repentance. And if there was ever a time when the people of Israel needed a prophet, it was during the time of Elijah. Because Elijah preached and ministered during the reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. Now, I've always had a soft spot in my heart of hearts in movies and TV shows for the bad guys. Darth Vader is the coolest one in Star Wars. He just is. The Joker is a whole lot cooler than Batman. It's just the way that it is. But Ahab has nothing positive about him. He's cruel. He's violent. Somehow, on the one hand, he seems to be a bloodthirsty tyrant, but he's also a weak man who cannot stand up to his wife, who's even worse than he is. The lady by the name of Jezebel, who's the one really running the show. And so Ahab may wear the crown, but she is the one who's turning the head that wears the crown. And it is during their reign of terror 
that God sent Elijah, the man of God, to confront them and to confront the people of Israel about their spiritual unfaithfulness. And Elijah comes into the Old Testament in 1 Kings 17 just like a whirlwind. And he comes in at 100 miles an hour preaching and praying and living right on the edge of the miraculous and doing the unthinkable as he stood for the Lord. And ultimately, all of it reaches a climax in 1 Kings chapter 18 where Elijah has his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And there all day long, the prophets of Baal, they sing and they dance and their praise band plays and finally they resort to cutting themselves, begging Baal to answer and consume their sacrifice with fire. But does Baal answer? No. And why doesn't Baal answer? Well, to hear Elijah say it, maybe he's on a trip. Maybe he's in a bathroom. Maybe he's asleep. Pray a little bit louder. Maybe you can wake him up. The reason Baal didn't answer is because Baal's not real. And that's Elijah's point as he preaches to the people of Israel. You need to stop limping along between two gods. If Baal's God, worship him and follow him. But if Yahweh is God, if the Lord is God, follow him. And so Elijah comes and he prays and instantly fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And then Elijah, in a moment of faithfulness to the Lord, under the obedience to the Lord's law, he executes the false prophets. And then Jezebel hears about it. And Jezebel threatens Elijah's life. And Jezebel says, if I don't do to you, what you did to my hired prophets, then may the gods they preached do to me what you did to them. And something in Elijah breaks when he hears this. A switch is flipped. Something in his mind or in his spirit just cannot handle this threat from Jezebel. Something in his reptilian brain takes over. And for Elijah, it's fight or flight. And the only thing that he knows to do is to run. And he runs, and he runs, and he runs, and he runs until he finally sits alone under a juniper tree saying, Lord, I just wish that I was dead. I want you to pause here, and I want you to think about where Elijah's at. Not geographically, but I want you to think about where Elijah is at spiritually. I want you to think about how disconnected from reality Elijah is. As Elijah prays for God to kill him, but why is Elijah praying for God to kill him? Because somebody threatened to kill him. And he was afraid of that threat. That's irrational, isn't it? It's crazy. It's backward. It's not the way a normal person, which, you know, I don't know what that means anymore, but it's not the way a normal person thinks. Elijah's fuel tank is empty. Elijah's battery is drained. Elijah has nothing left to give, and now he is down. We could call this a lot of things. We have Christian cliches that we stamp on moments like this. We call this a storm. We call this a valley. The Puritans would have called this a dark night of the soul. A psychologist would call this clinical depression. Winston Churchill might say that Elijah is being followed by the black dog that followed him around. Charles Spurgeon might say that Elijah has experienced one of the fainting fits that he experienced. But whatever it is, the battery is depleted. It's on zero percent. There's nothing left. I would say that this is a case of spiritual burnout. I would say that Elijah has been going so hard with some thought patterns that are not healthy that the moment something becomes heavier than he can possibly bear, Elijah totally breaks down. Burnout 
is what happens when people who formerly could not be stopped suddenly want to quit. Let me say that to you again. Burnout is what happens when people who formerly could not be stopped suddenly want to quit. Burnout is what happens when people who have been faithful in a church family for years suddenly seem to believe that that church would be better off in their rearview mirror. Burnout is what happens when the people of God who love His Word go weeks and months at a time without reading His Word and they don't notice. Burnout is what happens when the people of God are praying prayers they really don't want God to answer. Burnout is what happens when people believe the worst about their circumstances themselves and their God. Burnout is what happens when people really believe that the future is simply not worth facing. What I want us to do tonight is try and analyze Elijah and his experience the very, very best we can and figure out why this happened to him and why it happens to us because I sincerely believe tonight that some of you are spiritually burnt out. And I believe there are people in our church family that need to be here to hear this message tonight that aren't here to hear it because they're burnt out. And we often don't like the categories to understand this, or we don't we like the categories to understand that we don't possess the ability to understand what's happening in our lives or how it is that God wants to go about fixing it. So I want to provide for you tonight. I just want to provide for you a biblical way of thinking about these kind of things when they happen in our soul. So what does it look like? when this happens? Well, first, for Elijah, he loses his sense of self. Elijah loses his sense of self. Under the juniper tree, God will come to Elijah. But after Elijah prays in verse number four, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, y'all, I am not a psychologist, but I know that there are people that make a lot of money that have couches in their office that they are going to have a field day with that statement from Elijah. I am no better than my father's. Oh, really? Elijah, why don't you tell me about your dad? Why do you feel like you have to measure up, Elijah? And why don't you measure up? And how does that make you feel? I'm no better than my father's, and I wish I was dead. There's something off balance in the way that Elijah thinks about Elijah. There's something inside of Elijah that is giving in to these self-limiting thoughts where he only sees the worst in himself. But y'all, this is not who Elijah was. Here's who Elijah was. Elijah was the prophet who stared down Ahab and looked at Ahab in the very first sermon he preached in Scripture and said, it is not going to rain for three and a half years until I pray for it to rain because that's what the Lord said. Elijah is the prophet who sat by the brook Cherith and God fed him with ravens every day, even though the brook dried up. And Elijah is the prophet who went to the widow's house in Zarephath and he went to that widow and said, I know you're starving to death and you don't have any food, but I want you to make me a hoe cake before you cook anybody else, for anybody else. And before you starve to death, you make sure the preacher's got something to eat. Somebody say amen. And then because of her faithfulness, what happened? Elijah, the widow, and her son, they had cornmeal And they had oil and they had hoe cakes and cornbread every day. The Lord kept putting it in the barrel. And then the boy got sick and the boy died. And Elijah prayed for that boy and God brought that boy back from the dead. And then the widow says, this is who Elijah is in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse number 24. She said, now I know that you are a man of God. This is God's man saying, I am no better than my 
fathers. Something has happened inside of Elijah that has carried him from the world of humility over into the world of insecurity where he looks at himself and says, I'm no better than those that came before me. That is always a symptom of spiritual burnout when people can only see their shortcomings and they forget the way God has used them in the past. They only feel their failures and not the triumphs God has let them participate in. They feel their negative thoughts and they feel the lies of their enemy, but they do not feel the promises of God towards them in Christ. The Bible says they are accepted, but they feel rejected. The Bible says they are valued, but they feel like they have no worth. The Bible says they are loved, and yet they feel unwanted. Now, the text does not say precisely how this thought began to worm its way into Elijah's brain. The text does not mention Satan at all here, does it? There's no evidence that the devil is involved in any of this. These may just be Elijah's thoughts. Maybe he really did have issues with his dad. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's always issues with your dad, right? But I mean, we don't know. But I do know this. When a man of God is praying, God, I wish I was dead because I'm no better than my father's, that kind of thinking does not come from God. It is not the Spirit of God that has led Elijah to think this way. It is not the Spirit of God that puts those kind of thoughts in our minds. And one of the most important lessons we can learn in our spiritual lives is to learn the difference between the convicting voice of the Spirit of God and the accusing lies of the enemy. Because so many times we hear these voices telling us, not audible voices, if you're hearing voices, then that's a different sermon. But we hear something inside of us saying, we hear something inside of us saying, you're a sinner. You're wrong. Look how much you failed. And because we have maybe a tender conscience, we believe that's the Spirit of God convicting us. When often it is the enemy accusing us and lying to us. Say, well, Brother Jesse, how can I know the difference between the voice of the Spirit of God and the voice of our enemies? The difference is that the Spirit of God, who will convict you of your sin, will always point you to Christ. He will always remind you that there is forgiveness, that there can be freedom, that there is strength in Jesus. But if all you are hearing in your mind right now is I'm worthless, I'm no good, there's nothing valuable in me, there's no point in trying, there's no point in serving, God can never use me, my life is not worth living, that is your enemy. And your enemy is a liar and, for bonus points, he is going to hell. But those voices, it's convincing, isn't it? It's convincing when it begins to whisper in our ears. So what really did happen to Elijah? Is he listening to the Lord's voice? No, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But how does he get so low that he wants to die? I mean, I've been backslidden before, but this is, a, this is a different level. Well, certainly the immediate cause is Jezebel's threat. But I would just try to submit to you tonight that the seeds of Elijah's burnout were present well before Jezebel threatened him in 1 Kings 19. Hear me out on this. When Elijah comes into the picture in Scripture, he's active and public immediately. Immediately. He comes out of nowhere. We know nothing about him. And immediately he's preaching to the most powerful man in the country. And then from there, he's standing like right on the ragged edge of the miraculous the whole time he's walking with the Lord. Visible, public, active, 
busy seeing God do incredible things. So I think that in the way we might frame this, Elijah is a very task-oriented person. So much so that at the end of 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah is crippled and exhausted by burnout, God will cure that burnout by giving Elijah a new and more difficult job. You don't fix burnout people by giving them more to do. That cripples and destroys burnt out people. You fix burnout people by sending them to the beach for a week, right? So I think Elijah is the kind of person who's very, very task-oriented. But I think it's not just a personality quirk for Elijah. I think it is his spiritual temperament. It's his way of relating to God. I think that for Elijah, his relationship with God oftentimes was more about his activity for the Lord than it was his identity in the Lord. And I think that's true for a lot of you tonight too. In fact, I think one of the most crippling Achilles heels in our church is that many of us have a task-oriented way of relating to God. We think that there's only a relationship with God if we're busy, if we're active, if we're doing. And if we're not filling our calendar and filling our time with activities and busyness, and if we're not scheduling all of these things to do for the Lord, then the Lord's not going to bless us. If we're not working and striving and active, then God's distant from us. Why is it that Sunday's the busiest day of the week for us? Why is it that you crawl into bed on Sunday evening? Y'all, this is supposed to be a day of rest, but it's not. In fact, many of us don't have any space for rest in our relationship with God, do we? We don't worship a God who gives rest. We worship a God who gives jobs. But the God of the Bible gives rest. He invites us into rest. And if all we have is a job, then we're confused about our relationship to Him. But this is the way we've been taught. This is the way I grew up. This is, the way I, this is how you know you love God, because you're busy. Because you're busy all day on Sunday. Every night of the week is filled with prayer meeting or visitation or this thing or this other ministry. And you're going and you're going and you're going. And that's how you prove that you love God. And that's how you secure God's blessings on your life. And so we have a very task-oriented way of relating to God so that we think it's all about what we can do. Somebody much wiser than I told me the other week, that often our spiritual lives have been all about striving and not resting in Jesus. So, Brother Jesse, how can I know if that's me? Here's how you can know. If you live your spiritual life constantly feeling guilty because you're not doing more, if you're unable to say no at church, if you always feel disappointed in yourself and angry at other people, then chances are pretty good that your relationship with God is about what you do and it's task-oriented, and it leads to burnout. We need to be wise as a church in the way we think and plan and schedule so that we do not develop a culture of burnout. Because we do, right? The old cliche in Baptist churches is that 10% of the people do 90% of the work. That's probably true. But I can tell you that'll wear 10% of the people out really quick. And then if you've got a church of 100, you've got 10 people doing all the work. When five of those people get burned out, now you've got five people doing all the work. 
Y'all with me? Is my math holding up? And then guess what? Those five people are working twice as, twice as hard to keep up the other 90. And then what happens? They're going to bail too. And then you've got one or two that are still trying to do what 10 were doing two years ago. And they keep trying to stretch not enough butter over too much toast. And it's a vicious cycle of burnout. When we look and we say, well, we've got to have this, we've got to have this, we've got to have this program, this activity, this ministry, this spot on the calendar, this, 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 and this. So who can we cram into those spots to fill them? Instead of saying, who has God put here? What gifts do they have? And what does God want for us in this moment? What I'm saying to you is it's easy for us, it's easy for me to fall into the belief that my identity in Jesus comes from my activity for Jesus. That if I'm busy, then he loves me. If I'm active, then he cares. If I'm doing, then I matter. But here's the reality, folks. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of works. It is a gift of God. It is not of works lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We are his workmanship foreordained unto good works that we should walk in them. Yes, God wants us to be active for him. But our activity is always downstream from our identity. We do not work and serve so that we can earn his blessings. We work and we serve and we labor and we give and we strive and we do out of a place of rest because he has given us every blessing in Christ Jesus. And I think Elijah has got all of that backwards. He's lost his sense of self. Secondly tonight, and I'm going to try to pick up the pace. I'm going to try, Terry. But who knows, really. Elijah has lost his sense of belonging. He's lost his sense of belonging. He's alone. He's alone. Verse number 3 tells you that he ditched his servant and he kept going. Verses 10 and 14, he, one of his primary complaints to the Lord is, I am the only person, I'm the only one that has stood for you. Burnout isolates. It always, always isolates. It draws us away from the people that we need in our lives and makes us believe that we are the only ones who are faithfully serving the Lord. Pay careful attention to this passage of Scripture because the only thing that Elijah sees positive is his work. The only positive he feels is about the things that he has done. I wonder today if you would feel maybe the same way. Do you feel like you're the only person serving the Lord between you and God right now? Do you feel like you're carrying heavy burdens here at church that nobody else is sharing with you? Do you feel like the weight of the world is on you? Do you feel like you're the only one who sees clearly? Do you feel like you're the only one who's right? Do you feel maybe you're the only person here who genuinely hungers for God? The rest of these people, they don't care about the Lord, but I want something deeper. Has that locked you into a me versus them mindset? It did for Elijah. Did you see that? Verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, but those people, Lord, this ministry stuff will be easy if it weren't for these people. These people, they have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They, they, they are the problem. His ministry activity has been reduced to these selfish motives. It resents everybody who stands in his way. And he feels like, you know, nobody else is on my side. Nobody gets this. Nobody understands. That's what happens when we become burnt out. We think nobody feels the way that I feel. And of course Elijah would think that because he thinks nobody's doing what he's doing. 
And so nobody feels the frustrations and the disappointments that he feels. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. And some of you think that right now, don't you? You think there's nobody who understands the burden I carry, the loneliness I feel, the frustrations, the disappointments, nobody understands. I think part of the reason you have texts like 1 Kings 19 in the Bible is to show you, yes, there are people who have walked this path before you. Elijah walked this path. Jeremiah walked this path. David more or less lived here. Like every Tuesday, Thursday, Thursday and second Saturday, David was there. God, where are you? God, why have you abandoned me? God, my enemy's this and my enemy's that. We live in these moments sometimes, but the dangerous thing about burnout is that we become convinced we're the only person who feels it. We think nobody else has ever struggled with God. Nobody else has ever wrestled with Him. Nobody else has ever complained to Him. Nobody else has ever felt as if God is distant from them. Folks, we all feel it. We all struggle with this. We all get discouraged and we get defeated. And so don't let burnout isolate you from the people that you need. Don't let it cut you off from friendships that you need. Don't let it cut you off from the fellowship of the saints because that makes the cycle even worse because you'll cut yourself off from people that you need and then you will be alone and then that loneliness will only grow. Elijah has lost his sense of belonging. But I'll point out to you finally this evening, Elijah has lost his sense of direction. Elijah has lost his sense of direction. Elijah is a great man of God. And he's been uniquely sensitive to the voice of the Lord. In fact, go back with me just real quick and look in chapter 17, verse number 1. 1 Kings 17 and verse number 1. I just want you to see this pattern in Elijah's life. 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself at Cherith. Do you see what happens? The word of the Lord comes to Elijah and he says, Elijah, move. And Elijah moved. Verse 8, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, Elijah, move. And Elijah moves. Chapter 18, verse number 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go, Elijah, move. And Elijah moved. Elijah had always been sensitive to the promptings of the voice of the Lord. And he'd always followed when the Lord spoke. spoke. But now when you get into chapter 19, who is it that's making decisions for Elijah? Whose voice is it that is directing Elijah's movements? It's not the voice of the Lord, is it? It's really the voice of Jezebel working in conjunction with his own thoughts. The voice of the Lord had always animated Elijah to move in faith. Now the voice of Jezebel has animated Elijah to move in fear. There's something fascinating that happens in the Hebrew in this phrase in verse number three. Jezebel threatens Elijah. Verse number three says, then he was afraid. But your Bible may say that he saw this. If you're using the King James, it'll say something similar like that. The New American Standard says that. And what you find in English translations is about half and half. Half of them will say that Elijah saw this. Half of them will say that Elijah was afraid. And the reason is, in Hebrew, to say that you saw something is the Hebrew expression, v'yira. But to say you're afraid of something is the Hebrew expression, v'yira. Spelled exactly the same, sound exactly the same. It's just a weird language. It's like English, all right? And so they've just kind of had to pick. What I think is fascinating 
is that yes, Elijah was afraid, but he was afraid because he saw what Jezebel said. Now think with me through this. You don't see what people say, do you? You can't see what I say. You he- George gets it. You hear. You hear what I say. Unless what is said is so vivid, so captivating, so enthralling and so powerful that it puts an image in your mind that you can see. Elijah was afraid because when Jezebel threatened him, he saw it. It painted a picture in his mind. It captivated his heart. He saw himself being led away by her secret police in handcuffs. He saw himself being led up to the gallows. He saw this threat. And so it's Jezebel's vision of the future that is dominating Elijah's activity. And he lost his sense of direction. What is it that is capturing your heart today about your future? What is it that has set your vision for your life? Is it the Lord, His call upon you, His mission for you? Is it fear? What is it? It's important to note here, I think, that Elijah is not under the juniper tree praying for God to kill him because he was in a long pattern of sin. Now, he was in sin when he says, if you're praying for God to kill you, that's a sin, all right? But it wasn't a long pattern of sin that led Elijah here. It wasn't unforgiveness that led Elijah here. Many people in their walk with God, they deal with discouragement. They feel distant from God. They seem to have these spiritual problems in their relationship with Him, and life seems to fall apart. And the reason, frankly, is unconfessed sin. They're not burnt out, they're disobedient. And some people have an inability to worship. They have something that chokes their ability to praise God when they gather in church. And the reason is unforgiven sin. Somebody has hurt them and they have not forgiven that. They have not made it right the way the Lord tells them to. But that's not Elijah. Elijah is not in this situation because he's been running the wrong way. Elijah's in this situation because he's been running the right way. And he's been running hard and he's been running fast and he's had a lot on him until finally something goes wrong and he cannot continue to go and another voice overwhelms the voice of God. Let me say this to you. Hear me tonight. Please hear me when I say this. Sometimes it is not your fault when you run out of gas. Now, hear me, hear me, hear me, hear me. I was discipled well by the Reverend Alan Carr who taught me that when your tank on the car reaches a quarter of a tank, you buy gas. And if you buy gas at a quarter of a tank, you will never run out of gas. But there are sometimes you can run out of gas and it's not your fault. You could have a bad gauge. You could have a hole in the tank or in the line. You could have somebody come and just siphon it and rob you. And as high as it is, you couldn't blame them, right? You've thought about it a time or two. There are times when it is not ultimately our fault we run out of gas spiritually as well. Often we go through seasons of life that strain us spiritually. And we don't feel the effect of it for some time later. 
I burnt my foot with a potato yesterday. That's a true thing. It's not a joke. That really happened. And when that happened, I felt that pain immediately. A football player tears his ACL in a game on the weekend, and his season's over. He knows it immediately. But often when you receive a wound in your soul, it takes a long time for that to catch up to you. Part of the reason is because when it happens, we often don't have time to grieve. We have to act and react, and we have to keep moving forward. Often as Christians, we know that we are commanded to forgive, but instead of forgiving, we just ignore the sin that's being committed against us. We push it down instead of dealing with it God's way. Often we want to prove how strong we are. We don't want anybody in our church family or anybody in our circle to think of us as weak. And so a a really kind of noble but misguided sense of pride makes us want to look stronger than we are. And then eventually we break carrying burdens that we never were intended to carry. And so sometimes, sometimes it affects us much, much later. And what can happen is we go through moments of spiritual trauma and pain and grief and loss and abuse. And we feel it later. And so we don't really know what our problems are when we have them. And we don't really know who we're angry at when we're angry. Elijah is not really angry at God here, is he? Or to some degree, sure he is. But he's angry at Jezebel. She's the one who's wrong here. God hadn't done anything wrong. Jezebel has done something wrong. I wonder, has somebody who hurt you in the past, somebody who legitimately threatened you in some way, somebody who robbed your security, somebody who abused you, somebody who turned your world upside down spiritually, somebody who pulled the rug out from under you, deceived you, disappointed you, have they caused you finally to get to the point where you are just done? You're just done. Is that what's setting the direction for your life? It was for Elijah. That's always a symptom of burnout, is that we lose focus on what God has said. We lose God's voice amid competing competing voices, and we lose his sense of direction. That's the end of the sermon tonight. That's not very hopeful, is it? But let me go ahead and preach about two minutes of what I'm going to tell you next week. And the good news is, That when Elijah prayed to God to kill him, he prayed to a God that loved him. And Elijah praised God, I'm done. I'm done with you. I'm done with Israel. I'm done with life. I'm done with all of it. And God shows up and says, Elijah, take a nap. I'm not done with you. And really this whole story, come back next week and be surprised when I tell you this. This whole story. It's about the fact that when our batteries are empty and our tanks are depleted and we decide that we cannot go on and we want to run away from all of our problems and we want to just start over in life and we feel like we can't serve the Lord and we don't want to talk to him about it and we don't want to talk to anybody else about it, we still have a good and a kind God who comes to people at their lowest and says, I'm not going to give up on you even if you're giving up on me, but I can plug you back in, I can charge the battery, I can fill the tank, and I can take care of you. So be encouraged today. I know my preaching to you about it and my yelling about it does not mean that you're out from under the juniper tree, but I can tell you it is on good time. I can tell you that in the Lord's own good wisdom and in just the right way, the Lord is going to show up and he will minister to you. 
He will not abandon you under the juniper tree. And if nothing else, thank God there are no juniper trees in glory. There are no places to lay down and say, God, I'm done. But what there is there is a Savior who loves us and cares for us and says to us when we are discouraged, I am not going to leave you where you are, but I love you even though you feel forsaken. I love you even though you feel alone. I love you even though you've been hurt. And so take a nap and let's get going. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your mercy towards us when we are under our own juniper trees. God, there are people tonight that need to hear this message. God, as imperfect as, as my thoughts are and scattered as my delivery has been, God, there are people that are here that, frankly, they're burnt out. Lord, and, and they would be honest with you in this moment and say, Lord, I just want to quit. They want to quit. God, put enough gas in the tank for them to keep going down the road. Just do that, Lord. Let the clouds part for them just to see a little sunshine. Remind them, Lord, that the flowers will bloom again one day. God, give them some springtime in the middle of their winter. Remind them there's victory in Jesus. Do it, God, because you love them. And we thank you. I pray, Lord, that you would go with us as we leave this place tonight. Be with us when we meet together again on Wednesday evening. God, I pray that you would bless us in our various vocations and walks of life as we try to follow you. Surround us with your presence, Lord. As the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. And Lord, lead us not into temptation. Temptations for discouragement and defeat, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And amen. Hearts and minds are clear. You are dismissed.